Let me read our scripture today on which the teaching, teaching is based, and we're in the middle of the book of Jude. And so, um, a longer passage today, but it will be worth it, okay? And when we get to the end, uh, don't forget our little mantra around here. Uh, this is the word of the Lord, and you say, thanks be to God. Yeah, let's do that at the end. So, here's, here's what Jude has to say, starting in verse 5. So, I want to remind you, Though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality, and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. In the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. But these people scoff at things that they do not understand, like unthinking animals. They do whatever their instincts tell them, and so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them, for they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money, and like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. When these people eat with you, in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love. They are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in the autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. They are like wild waves of the sea churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They are like wandering stars doomed forever to black, blackest darkness. Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation like Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. And he will convict every person of all the ungodly things that they have done. And for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves, and they flatter others to get what they want. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Our uh, uh, kid, you can go. We'll dismiss our kids to children's ministry down the hall. Paul and Kara are waiting for you outside. Good morning. Welcome to week two of Trust Issues. You know, a few years ago, <clears throat> the leader of Israel reached out to the Pope and said, I think it would be a great gesture if we had a friendly competition and we played a round of golf together. And so the Pope uh, then went and consulted with his inner circle, with the cardinals who he surrounded himself with and said, uh, I think this is a great idea, but I've never played a round of golf in my life. I've never even picked up a golf club. 
Uh, is there anyone here who could go and go as a representative and play this round of golf so that the Catholic Church isn't embarrassed? And the Cardinals are kind of looking at themselves, and they look around the room and realize that none of them played golf either. They were totally clueless. They'd spent their life devoted to religious studies and to the service to the church. And so they thought, well, what are we going to do? Because none of us are qualified or capable. And one uh, unassuming uh, Cardinal president raised his hand and said, um, Sir, there is a, a very devout Catholic man, his name is Jack Nicholas, and uh, we could confirm him as a cardinal, and he could go play on our behalf. And so that's what they did, and they sent Jack Nicholas off to play in this golf match between the, the Catholicism and Judaism, and, and uh, Jack Nicholas returned, and he said, I have, I, mean, I have really good news, and I have really bad news. And so the Pope said, well, what's the good news? And he said, I have never played a better round of golf in my life. My drives were straight and true as if the Spirit of the Lord was playing through me. My, my putts were perfect. I have never been better when it comes to a round of golf. And he said, well, what's the bad news? That sounds great. He said, I lost to Rabbi Tiger Woods by three strokes. <laughs> Thank you. Wow, someone actually enjoyed the joke. I'm not sure first service they even heard it. Okay, uh, we have some trust issues, don't we? Uh, we, we have some trust issues, and where we'll get today is we don't just have trust issues with uh, people outside of ourselves. We have trust issues even within ourselves. And Jude's going to really challenge us, uh, really challenge us to think critically and carefully about where we're placing our trust. And so we have to, we have to jump right into this this morning. We've got a long way to go. We just read a lot of text. got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So let's jump right into verse 5. Here's how Jude begins the body of his letter. He says, so I want to remind you. I want to remind you. Uh, Jude starts by saying, listen, I know you know this stuff. What I'm about to tell you isn't news. It's something you've known for a long time. And friends, you know, we just read some fairly obscure portions of the Bible. Uh, and what we have to remember is that Jude isn't writing to us, right? The Bible is for us, but it wasn't written to us. There's a big distinction there. Jude's ori original audience was a group of Messianic Jews, people who had grown up in Jewish tradition and faith and who had now accepted Jesus as their Savior. And so the Jewish scriptures and other uh, works of literature and oral tradition would have been very familiar to them. It's foreign to us, but it would have been very familiar to them. And so several places in his letter, Jude's quoting from uh, works of literature that are not part of our canonical text. They're called deuterocanonical or pseudepigraphal works of literature. And so quotations from people like Enoch or discussions about the body of Moses, things like that, that do not sound familiar to us would not have been foreign to them. They would have resonated with that. They would have known exactly what Jude was trying to convey. And so I think there's still a very helpful, profound, truth-filled message for us to get to. But we're going to have to kind of pick and choose our spots today. The first thing that Jude does is, is says, listen, this isn't news to you. This is all stuff you already know. And Jude is a wise guy. He realizes that you catch more flies with honey. And so he's not going to come in kicking down doors and bashing heads and saying, listen, you guys are terrible. Now see, Jude makes it a point, Jude makes it a point to bring his rebuke against those who have caused controversy, not against those who are caught up in its crossfire. There's a big difference. He makes it a point to bring his rebuke against those who have caused controversy, not against those who are caught up in its crossfire. And so as we are a people who contend for the faith, that's where we left it last week, we're a people who contend for the faith, that we would be a people who contend first in our own hearts and homes, 
And as we contend for the faith, we are, we are more about challenging ideologies than tearing down individuals. More about challenging ideologies than tearing down individuals. That's an important distinction for a church that wants to represent Jesus well. We need to remember that we contend for the faith. Now Jude will give three examples here, right from the get-go, of things, of sins that God has already condemned, things that have existed as part of the story of the nation of Israel and a part of humanity that God has already condemned, sinful behaviors. The first one is this, that God condemns the idolatry and the unfaithfulness of Israel. You'll remember that after the Exodus, this miraculous event in which God leads his people out of Egypt and parts the waters of the Red Sea, that even after that, Israel cast for themselves an idol at the base of Mount Sinai as God was delivering the law to Moses. They would continue on to be unfaithful in several different ways, and so as a punishment, God forced them to wander the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation had died off, including Moses, and then they could go and enter the promised land. The second thing that Jude draws attention to in God's rebuke is a a, a little obscure part of Scripture found in Genesis 6 where it discusses a a group of beings called the Nephilim. This is something crazy. You didn't go to VBS as a kid and be like, we're going to talk about the Nephilim today. (laughs) We We just didn't do that. But here's what the text says. In Genesis 6, it says the sons of God, that's what these Nephilim are called, the sons of God had sex with the daughters of men and they procreated a different kind of being. That's crazy, right? We don't, talk, we don't stand on stage and, and preach about the Nephilim very much. But Jude wants, wants to make the point that sexual perversion is something God has always been against. That's his main message. Sexual perversion is something God has always been against. And likewise, he groups into this uh, group of three Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah is probably a story that many of us are familiar with. It's probably the most famous example of God's harsh judgment and rebuke of sin. Sodom and Gomorrah were notorious for being cities filled with filth, with people who were engaged with sex, in sexual acts. And the text says right here in Jude, he says that they were filled with every kind of sexual perversion. And what's important for us, friends, as we sit in a room like this today, is to not look at stories like Sodom and Gomorrah and just assign it to one type of sin. There's a, there's a term that exists based on Sodom and Gomorrah, sodomy, Right? And we need to be careful that we don't read Sodom and Gomorrah as just a cautionary tale to certain kinds of people. Sodom and Gomorrah is a cautionary tale to all of us because this room is filled with every kind of sexual perversion. There's not a person in here who hasn't been impacted by sexual sin. And so we need to be wise that Jude's warning is a warning for us, not just for other people, it's a warning for us. This is, this is activity. This is behavior. These are things, these are sins that God has condemned. He's never just been okay with it. God has never been someone who's just let sin slide, who just lets it continue on. He's always gone after it, tearing it out by the root. He's never been indifferent towards it. And God is not now suddenly okay with sinful behavior. You'll remember that this false teaching, this ideology that these teachers wanted to circulate was one of dualism. It was the earliest form of a way of thinking called Gnosticism, and the teaching went something like this, that because the body and the spirit are separate, whatever happens in the body has no impact or influence on the spirit. And so you can go do whatever it is that you want with your body and indulge in whatever kind of fleshly desires as long as you worship God in spirit. And friends, we know this isn't true. 
Based on our own lived experience, we know that our spirit and our physical bodies are deeply intertwined. What happens to us physically has a profound impact on who we are spiritually. And so what Jude will challenge us to understand right from the get-go is that God has always been a God who condemns sin. It has ruined his world, and he is out to get it out. But Jude also helps us realize that the world isn't suddenly worse than it's ever been. It's easy to get to that point in our thinking where we turn on the news or we open our news app and we, we read or consume different sorts of material and media and we think, man, things are bad. Man, this is crazy. When did the world get so bad? And I'm here to tell you, and Judah is too, that the world has always been bad. It's always been full of filth. It's always been full of sinful people. It's not worse than it was. It's always been bad. And it's always needed Jesus. And there's some hope in that. We're not in a worse position than the world was thousands of years ago. We're just in the same one. And Jesus has always been the answer. Now, I believe in our text this morning, there are uh, a few key verses that we need to highlight as a way of navigating our way through these scriptures. The first is verse 8, Jude 8. Here's what he says. In the same way, these people, he's saying in the same way of uh, Israel's unfaithfulness, uh, the uh, the rebuke of the Nephilim and the uh, rebuke of Sodom and Gomorrah, saying, in the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. Friends, I think as we journey through the text this morning, there are three dangers that we need to avoid. Three dangers that we need to avoid. And the first one is this. We need to avoid the danger of falling or succumbing to individual revelation over corporate interpretation. Falling to the danger of individual revelation over communal interpretation. Jude very affectionately calls them these people, right? These people have this line of thinking. They derive their authority from dreams. Now, Scripture has been discussing and teaching us about dreams and visions, and certainly this is part of God's revelation to man. We read about this in stories like Joseph and Daniel and in the time of Jesus and even Peter himself had a vision from God that declared all animals were now safe to eat. Dreams and visions are part of how God communicates with his people, but this is an important facet of, uh, of that. That God's message is always consistent with his character. God's message is always consistent with his character and it should be easy for us to check, Right? Jude starts out by saying, God has always condemned behavior like this. And so some new revelation to a specific individual does not now make these things okay or permissible. Just because someone has a dream doesn't mean they can change who God has always been. So every message we encounter must be now distilled through God's word. We have to look at it through the lens of scripture in order to deem if it's appropriate and good and helpful. This ability to discern who is true and who is false has never been more important than today because anyone and everyone can have a platform. They can post whatever they want, tweet whatever they want, blog whatever they want, put a, produce and, and, and promote a video about whatever they want. Lots of different people have lots of different opinions and they share them constantly. This idea of individualism is lauded and applauded in our culture today. The more unique your story, the more subjective your ideology, the more celebrated you are. The more you you are, the better you are. 
Now, we might come to a text like Jude and think, who are these false teachers? If we were to apply the template of Jude on our own world today, who would we identify as false teachers? And I want to present to us just the idea that a false teacher can be anyone who is a thought leader. Anyone who is a thought leader. And there are three, what I think are potentially dangerous kinds of thought leaders prominent in our culture today. They are the pastor, the politician, and the public figure. The pastor, the politician, and the public figure. Um, in the mid-80s, Daniel Wegner, who was a psychologist and social researcher, came up with a term that he called uh, transactive memory. Transactive memory. And it was the idea that we, we store information in our own minds. We know how to do certain things and execute certain tasks. But we store information in the minds of other people as well. And the best explanation of this is that if you're in the room with your spouse today, there's one of you that knows how to operate the remote for your TV. And the other one knows that your spouse knows how to operate the remote for your TV. There's one of you who knows how to pay the bills and what all of them are, and there's the other one that knows my spouse knows what all of our bills are and how to pay them every month. There are certain things that we just we don't force ourselves to remember or to think about because we know someone else close to us knows those things. And here's what's dangerous about transactive memory is we've started to do this now with thought leaders where we adopt wholesale the ideology, the teaching, the leading from these people even if we haven't navigated it fully. We store information in their minds and we rely on them to tell us what is true and good and helpful. And a lot of the times they're not faithful to the Scripture. Now, the first is this, the pastor. Now, I, what I don't mean is someone who's connected to the local body, especially someone like Dusty or Paul who have been with you and doing life and ministry with you for decades now. That's not what I mean. But there is a kind of pastor in our culture today, a celebrity pastor, who is growing a massive following, and they have a lot of clicks and views and likes, and they have their own TV channels and all these kinds of things. I'm not saying these people are, are inherently sinful or bad, or should always be tuned out. I'm just saying we need to be wise. And we need to be really familiar with what the Word teaches so that we can understand whether their message is correctly applied. These pastors oftentimes love to manipulate the message of God's Word for their own gain. There are certainly those who are more harmful than others, but some of these people, they really play to the crowd. Those who are hungry for hope and for healing will eagerly fork over their money to this person who promises through a special connection to God to heal them or provide just what they need. But good terminology does not equate good theology. These people might be gifted orators or communicators. They might have a big platform. They might have the brand of Christian. But it doesn't mean that they're following or teaching Christ well. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul will challenge the church much in the same way that Jude does where he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the gospel that we taught to you. I'm astonished. And he'll go on to say, not that there is another one, but some of us are being duped. Some of us are easily falling into a line of thinking where we adhere to individual revelation rather than a corporate interpretation. The second dangerous version of a thought leader is a politician. Everybody ready to get their feelings hurt? <laughs> Take a deep breath. Let's talk politics and church together, okay? People who run for public office do a lot of thinking for us. And it's never been more evident than this last election cycle where we 
man, we jumped into one camp or the other. It was this guy or this guy, and we adopt wholesale everything about that person. Even if that's never who we've been before, we now suddenly join one of these tribes. We're often so easily persuaded by a few buzzwords or phrases that tickle our ears, statements like God bless America and pray for our troops, which are good things. But it doesn't make the person saying them a good representation of Jesus. Politicians parade around Christian leaders in order to promote their own platform. I'm reminded of, of Jesus' words in Matthew 15 where he quotes the prophet Isaiah. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. They teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Friends, we need to be wise about who we're listening to, about who we're allowing to do our thinking for us. And I know politics are big and scary, and there's a lot that goes on there that we don't understand and can't navigate on our own. Just need to be wise. Who am I allowing to do my thinking for me? Are they in line with God's Word? Do they check out when it comes to who Jesus is? And friends, what's scary to me is generally, as Americans, we're impressed with charisma and not character. Generally, we're impressed with charisma and not character, and therefore, we fall victim to a lot of different people's ideas. In 1933, Adolf Hitler declared Christianity to be the national religion of Germany. And the German Christian church was born. Hitler and the Nazi leaders thought that the cross was a symbol of weakness. And therefore, they replaced crosses throughout all of Germany with the banner of a swastika, which now hung in the German Christian church. Leaders in the German Christian church, ministers, had to swear an oath of fealty, not to Christ, but to Hitler. Hitler wore the brand of Christian but his beliefs were nowhere near what Christ's were. Now this is not a dig at any one politician or party, and before you sit there and receive this and think, well, this is so true of them over there. Friends, this is true of all of us. We fall right in line to one person's thinking, an individual revelation that has nothing to do with the corporate interpretation of God's word. We need to be wise. The final version of a thought leader that we need to be wise about is the public figure. Actors, singers, athletes, performers, social media influencers, entrepreneurs, businessmen and women, social activists. Every time we open that app or click on that page, read that blog, watch that video, we are being discipled. We're bombarded with subjective thought and we're being instructed what to think. If we don't carefully consider what we are consuming, we will be consumed by it. The tragedy here is that we'll justify our own lifestyles, our choice of words, the way we act towards other people who don't agree with us, all based on what this leader looks like. Rather than taking every thought captive for Christ, our own thoughts are taken and held captive by another person. No matter who the individual is, the issue here is that these people are not Jesus. Celebrity pastor, politician, a public figure, none of them are Jesus. And we need to be wise about not centering our whole lives, not building our theology or framing up our worldview based on what this one person thinks. That's just an individual. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 22, the prophet writes this, don't put your trust in humans. They are as frail as breath. When I was in college, I worked at Walmart for a season and 
one of the uh, things you had to do at Walmart, one of the, the, the pieces of training that we went through was how to spout, uh, spot counterfeit bills. And there were some simple things you could do. You, you had a marker at your, at your little cashier station. You could mark uh, the high-value bills, 50s, 100s, etc., and see if, if they uh, made a smudge or some kind of mark. But the easiest way to tell if a bill is counterfeit, does anyone know what you do? You just hold it up to the light, right? There's a watermark there. And friends, life can be crazy and messy, and there's a lot to, to wade through and navigate. But let me just tell you this. When it comes to people who want to lead your thinking, a pastor, a politician, or a prophet, the most simple thing you can do is just hold them up to the light. What do you see? Do you see Jesus in them? Do you see them leading you to look more like him, to be more compassionate, more service-oriented, more generous, more kind, more caring, more kingdom-minded? Just hold them up to the light, and you'll see them. The extreme danger here of individual revelation rather than communal interpretation is not something we're necessarily cognizant of. Because these individuals oftentimes will claim to have some sort of special revelation. And this is, to the extreme, the most extreme version of this is like a cult leader. Someone who claims to have a special revelation from God that only they know how to interpret and so they can communicate it to the masses and they can lead everyone in what is right. For the Branch Davidians, it was David Koresh. For the Nexium cult in New York, it was Keith Raniere. For the Manson family, Charles Manson. For the People's Temple, Jim Jones. For Heaven's Gate, Marshall Applewhite, that list just continues on and on and on. And what startles me is not that there are crazy people in the world with crazy ideas. Listen, I've met some of you, okay? That doesn't, doesn't worry me. What worries me is this. That there are so many people who just jump in with a full head of steam right behind these people. How do they gain these kinds of followings? Why is there so much traction there? Each of these persons claims to have a special revelation that only they know and understand. And here's, hear me in this, hear me well. Our obsession as a culture was with celebrity pastors, politicians, public figures has become, for lack of a better term, cultish. I saw a tweet from one of my Ozark professors where he retweeted a list of eight signs you might be in a cult. I want to read them for us today. Number one, leaders are the ultimate authority. Number two, skepticism is suppressed. Number three, they're paranoid of outsiders. Number four, they rely on shame cycles. Number five, questions are always answered with cliches. Number six, leaders are above the law. Number seven, there's a lack of financial transparency. And number eight, the group is elitist. Now, I'll let you be the judge of what kind of contemporary examples fall within that list. And I think all of us in the room, all of us in the room would say, I'm wise enough not to fall into a cult. I, I, I'm wise enough in my own head. I'm smart enough. I got a good head on my shoulders. I'm not going to follow someone's leader like that. I'm not going to drink the Kool-Aid, right? But I don't think that's the most clear and present danger for us as Christians today. Because we live in a culture of hyper-individuality. Everything is about the individual. It's this premise that whatever the person feels right is right. And no one can tell you how to be you because you're the only person who knows you. And Christians 
have become way more informed by a meology than a theology. This is made no more evident than when we sit around in a circle and we study God's Word together, and when it's your turn, you say something like this, and I've said this too, this is what this verse means to me. And now, all of a sudden, we've made ourselves the main character of God's Word. We've made the Scriptures about us. We've made them subjective. And now we're looking at God's Word through the lens of me. What does this mean for me? Friends, in all Christian love, I just need to tell you this, it doesn't matter what it means to you. It just matters what it means. And we need to be wise to even in our own lives not get to the point where our individual revelation, this is what I wanted to see or what I wanted to hear. Because listen, we can read the Scriptures through the lens of me and we will arrive at whatever conclusion we wanted to find in the first place. We'll find a justification. We'll find an allowance. We'll have we'll find a, a granting of license to whatever behavior it is that we wanted to do to begin with. So we need to be wise about gathering corporately to interpret the Scriptures together and saying, no, this is the truth of God's Word. We'll hold to it. We'll believe in it together. It's what we do as a team on staff before we ever get up here and preach a message. We talk about what the text means. So that it's never just one person saying something to all of us. Meology is its own form of cult because we are both the persuader and the persuaded. This isn't just something that's true for certain people in certain parts of the world or certain political affiliations. It's true for all of us. We are all part of a culture of individualism. So here are eight signs you are your own cult leader. I haven't made you mad enough already. Number one, you are your own authority your own ultimate authority. You're impossible to admonish. No one can encourage you to think differently or act differently. You're skeptical of Scripture that condemns your sin. You're paranoid about submission to anything or anyone. You shame others who disagree with you. You have a quip or quick remark for those who you've deemed your enemy. You are the exception to the rule. No amount of money is ever enough, and no one is as important as you. Friends, I think all of us would say we're wise enough not to fall into a cult someday. But I think there's a lot of us who need to look at our life through the lens of me and examine ourselves carefully. Have you become your own God? Have you made yourself the ultimate authority? And the message of Jude 8 is that what God has condemned, these people continue to do. What God has put to death, these people continue to put into practice. And he makes this threefold accusation. Number one, they pollute their own bodies. This is a term that refers to all sorts of sexually defiling practices, not just a few. Number two, they reject authority. They disregard the lordship of Christ. They want all of his salvation with none of their submission. And number three, they scoff at supernatural beings. This is the term blasphemeo in the Greek. It's where we get our English word blaspheme literally, to speak insultingly about. Hear me. God's Word should be studied personally. You should go home today and the rest of this week and you should read your Bible. You should spend time with God. God's Word should be studied personally, but it should always be interpreted corporately. 
We must be wary of individual revelation, whether it is from other people who would seek to lead our thoughts or whether it's even from our own selves who are seeing something in God's Word that isn't actually there. Second danger we need to be hyper aware of is this, that we can quickly become a people of instinct rather than instruction. In Jude verse 10, here's what he says, these people scoff at things they do not understand like unthinking animals. They do whatever their instincts tell them and so they bring about their own destruction. They bring about their own destruction. Now acting instinctively seems authentic. Seems like that's the real you. It's what naturally came out. That's me. That's who I really am. But it's actually to our detriment. Generally, we're acting instinctively when we're filled with emotions. And I heard a really good quote this week from another preacher. He said that emotions are great passengers and terrible drivers. Emotions are great passengers and terrible drivers. We need to be wise about what it is that's leading us to where we're headed. And in a culture built on acting instinctually, we're also a culture of impulsivity. Everything about our culture is impulsive. There's a a button on the Amazon page called One Click Pay. And in one click of a button, your credit card information already loaded in there, address, everything is already there. In one click, you can have that item at your house in two days or less. The decision you have to make on Netflix isn't, do I want to watch another episode? It's actively telling Netflix, I don't want to watch another episode. It just keeps them churning. It'll populate the next one automatically. McDonald's will supersize your combo for only 40 more cents. Google will will populate the search bar before you're even done typing in the thing that you wanted to look up. And now all of a sudden, you're on a weird part of the internet looking up, I don't know, nursery rhymes written for animals. (laughs) It gets weird real quick. YouTube will suggest three new videos right as you finish the one that you went to watch in the first place. And social media platforms are built so that you never leave them, so that you always scroll. There's always something else to see. And there's always that one more video, that one more comment, that one more article that you need to read. Our world sets us up to live instinctually and act impulsively. I said this line in the first two services. It may not be true of them. I know it's true of this service. We probably pick this item up about 50 times a day for no reason at all. No buzz, no, no chime, no anything. We just pick it up because we feel like we're supposed to. And all of a sudden, it's like, why did I pick up my phone? Why did I open it? Because we are now taught that everything happens here. And if we're bored or angry or worried, we just go here right away. Whatever we are devoting our time to is discipling us. Whatever we're devoting our time to is discipling us. And here's what Jude says about these individuals that they... They scoff at things they don't understand. Rather than being wise and being made aware of things, they just scoff at things they don't understand. And if you want a convenient way to disregard instruction, to just ignore it entirely, simple, you just insult it. If you want a convenient way to ignore instruction, you just insult it. Now, this is true in the backyard as a little kid, right? Johnny, go jump your bike off the ramp. No, my mom said I'm not supposed to. Well, your mom's dumb. Oh, I don't want a dumb mom. I guess I'm going to go jump my bike off the ramp, right? That one little insult just pushed you over the edge. You want a convenient way to disregard instruction, just insult it. And friends, this is even more true of us as adults. 
Think about the past several presidents, not just a few, several. We've only gotten more partisan, tribal, and vicious. We don't want to be subject to the authority of someone that we don't like, and so what do we do? We insult that person. It doesn't matter which side of the aisle you sit on. The other half of the country is hurling insults at the individual that God's word, hear me, commands us to honor. It's not optional. It's not up for subjective interpretation. It is the objective teaching of God's word that we would honor our rulers and authorities. And because we don't like that person, we insult it and therefore easily sidestep the instruction from God's word. Jude says these people are like that. These false teachers who want to lead you into a harmful ideology and a cancer that will kill the church are leading people to insult things that they don't want to respond to. And in line with the impulsive nature of instinctual, unthinking animals, Jude will give three examples then in verse 11. He says, like Cain, like Balaam, and like Korah. Cain who killed his brother impulsively because he didn't like that God responded favorably to Abel and not him. Balaam who used moral entrapment for financial gain. And Korah who led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron because he didn't like that God had appointed them as leaders. All three of these examples, God destroys and dismisses. Satan worms his way into our hearts and minds by getting us to insult instruction. And if he can get us to insult the instruction that we receive from the world, then he can easily do it with God's word. The question, did God really say, is not just something that Satan said in the garden. It's the phrase he repeats to all of us over and over and over again. A worming into our minds to get us to call into question everything that we believe. God's rules for sex are antiquated. Certainly they need to be updated. God is a vindictive tyrant. Can't be good. God's just after your money. Can't be trusted. God doesn't understand my situation. I'm unique, I'm special, I'm different, and so what God's word teaches, I don't need to respond to because I am the exception. When we live like unthinking animals, we will live impulsively, immaturely, insatiably, idolatrously. But when we submit ourselves to the instruction of God's word, we will live in accordance with it. We'll have integrity, stability, We'll live contentedly and commendably. Friends, our instincts are infected. There's not a person who sits in one of these seats who doesn't have sin in their heart. And the Bible teaches there's a war of the flesh against the spirit that God placed in our heart. Your desires can't be trusted. Mine either. That's why we need to respond to God's instruction why he's given us a good book to follow because our instincts are infected i love this quote from martin lloyd jones he says this don't listen to yourself your feelings will fail you don't listen to yourself talk to yourself some of us in the room have been called crazy people are thinking yes i talk to myself we should one of the reasons we memorize scripture so that we can repeat it to ourselves over and over again we can remind ourselves what's true in the face of what might lead us to falsehood. The third danger is this, that we might be tempted to live under the guise of ignorance rather than an awareness. 
We might be tempted to live in ignorance rather than awareness. Here's what Jude says about these people. He gives these six metaphors that they are reefs on which you will wreck. They're shepherds who only feed themselves. They're clouds without rain. They're trees without fruit or root. They're wild ways of the sea. They're wandering stars doomed to blackest darkness. And now, these metaphors are rich and robust. I I wish that we had time to get into them today, and we just don't. Here's essentially what Jude is saying, that these kinds of thought leaders always promise and never provide. What they're inviting you to do, the kinds of activities you're invited to participate in, or the, the way of life that you're encouraged to model, it's a promise, but it will never provide the satisfaction that you desperately seek. Living more individually and impulsively only leads to catastrophe. Your life won't be better when you become your own boss. You won't feel more fulfilled when you indulge that sinful behavior that's been calling you and whispering whispering to you in your ear. Your life only gets better when you invite Jesus into it. So finally, in, in verse 15, we'll land the plane here. Here's what he says. The Lord is coming with countless holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Judgment is coming. Judgment is a good thing. It's what our hearts long for. Even if we wouldn't say it that way, it's what we desperately want God to do when we see tragedy, when we experience disaster, when things in our world are falling apart. What we want most is for God to judge the world. God said it right again. Bring your justice into it. We desperately want that. But the troubling part for us is that the text teaches that God is returning to judge every person. And in our culture today, we love to blame shift. We like to point fingers and pretend as if we, we certainly couldn't ever be held responsible for that decision or remark or activity. I was just following the example of this person. I was just following the leading of this person. And what the text tells us right here is that every person will be judged. Every person is responsible for their response to Jesus. So whoever you're following today, if it's not Jesus, it won't cut it. See, ultimately the case that Jude has been trying to build by listing these examples of sin and talking about who these false teachers are and the kind of lives that they live, ultimately what he's saying to us, and here's the sermon in a sentence. If you hear nothing else today, walk out knowing this. If you want to be your own God, you're going to have to solve your own problem. If you want to be your own God, you're going to have to solve your own problem. And there is a problem that every single one of us faces, and that is the problem of judgment. And you can face it on your own. God will not force himself on you, but I'll assure you of this because I know you are like me. The case for the prosecution is good. It's strong. And if you want to, you can have the best defense lawyer that has ever existed. His name is Jesus. He's never lost a case and he never will. And what what Scripture promises us, the beautiful promise of God's Word and the beautiful teaching of our faith is this, that when we accept Jesus, He acts on our behalf. And when we stand in judgment before God one day, Jesus literally stands in front of us. So when He looks at us, He doesn't see our sin, He sees His Son. And we are welcomed into God's family because of what Jesus has done. And so when we submit to Him, joyfully, glad, willingly, Jude calls himself a slave of Christ because he loves that identity. 
I'm bound to him. I'm tethered to him. When we submit to Jesus, we have a good defender. If you want to be your own God, you'll have to solve your own problems. And if we want to live in a culture of individuality and look at life through the lens of meology and decide this is what's right for me because this is what feels right, listen, it just won't be right at the end. If you want to be your own God, you'll have to solve your own problems. But all you have to do is welcome Jesus in. There are a lot of leaders who cannot be trusted, who shouldn't be trusted. A lot of thought leaders who would want to lead us away from God's word, and we just need to be wise, church. We have trust issues because we just don't trust Jesus well enough. I want to invite you to trust him today. It's all he's ever asked you to do is just to trust him. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. It's useful. Teaching, rebuking, for training in righteousness. It, it's useful for us today. It's powerful. It's profound. God, there's not a, a person in this room today who shouldn't receive your word and be cut to the heart. So would you give us a spirit of humility? Help us not to put up walls and be combative about something that your word teaches that we don't like. Would we just be a people who say, yes, Lord, I trust you. The way that my flesh would lead me will lead me to failure. And so, God, I just want to submit and surrender to you. I have nothing on which to stand. And so help me to stand in you. God, would you lead us in your spirit today to be a Jesus people? It's in his name I pray. Amen.